For those who are listening outside these walls, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. And this is the pastor continuing the Sunday morning message, but I would subtitle today's message, A Firm Foundation, or sub-subtitle it, uh, Foundations Which Last, or sub-sub-subtitle it, if you want a sub-sub-sub-sub-subtitle, uh, in light of how our how our culture is today, uh, this one, I don't know if I should use this one or not, maybe we'll just scratch this one, but I've got to give you the idea now, because it did come into my brain as I was studying for this. Will the real Captain Marvel please stand up? Okay, think about that. Anyway, the real, okay. Now, I say that because of where we're going, and for those who are listening, you can find our passage of study in Matthew chapter number 7, Matthew chapter number 7, I would like to read verses 24 and following through the end of the chapter, as we continue our thoughts on following the Lord's blueprint for building a blessed life on the rock, on the firm foundation, on the foundation which will last, and as others encountered his teaching on this day, and as we do here in the scriptures all these years later, we still stand and marvel at the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Join me in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. We read these words. Jesus summarizing, I believe, the entire uh, content of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Lord, as I come before your word, I do so humbly. And I ask that you would use me this morning to help others see the truth that you would have for them here. These are passages that if we're not careful, we'll read them quickly because we heard them in Sunday school or we sang a song about them. If we're not careful, Lord, we might miss something very important that you would teach each of us. There's not one of us now that can say we haven't heard you because you've spoken through your word. And I've just read it in the ears of everyone that's listening here. And so we qualify as those that hear your words. But Lord, I ask that you would help us to move on from that. And for those who have been able to do this, Lord, I thank you for their example of faithfulness. And help them, Lord, as we endeavor to walk after your words and do the things that you taught. We may not know how we'll face situations until we're in them. I know training that I've gone through in the past to train me to think through ahead of time what I might do in a circumstance when it happens, not if it happens, but when it happens, to be as prepared and as ready as I can for those things. And Lord, until we encounter some of the things that 
you describe in this very message to your disciples, until we live through some of those, we really don't know how we'll respond. But we can think through them ahead of time now. And we can be more forward-looking. And we can look into the far beyond future, rather than just the temporal here and now. And Lord, I'm sure your Spirit will give us discernment to know exactly when those times are upon us, as you gave to your apostles that followed you, and disciples ever since you left to go to glory, and ascended up before them. Your Holy Spirit has worked through your people, and given them a calm assurance, and a sweet peace that passes understanding, to uphold them, Lord. You've helped them to accomplish great and mighty things, not through their own strength, but through the testimony they bore for the Lord Jesus Christ in some of the most dire and diverse circumstances. Oh Lord, I pray that as being under pressure, when that comes, we as your people would shine forth as lights to a lost and dying world. And may our testimony linger. And may there be fruit to our account that would remain even after we're gone from this life. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help our work to stand, that we would be likened by you someday to that wise follower, that wise person. Lord, may we be obedient. We stand in awe. We marvel at the simplicity, the succinctness of how you said these things, and we still study them today, Lord, and we trust that when we get to be with you, you'll expound them even in a deeper way. Thank you, Lord, for the hope of Scripture. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers, only deceiving our own selves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. As we began last time looking at this closing section of this so-called Sermon on the Mount, we noted how extraordinary this was that Jesus would close a sermon this way. <laughs> it still amazes me to think about how he would drive it home. You know, we... We contrast it with uh, what, what we learn in preaching schools today and classes about preaching and teaching today and, and the ways that we want to leave people with a good feeling in their heart and, and we want to you know, help build them up. Well, Jesus basically lays the choice before them and says, you can either listen or you don't have to listen. You're going to hear what I'm saying, and what I mean by listening there, for those who are following me, is you're going to do what he said. You know, Eating is part of that. And so you hear the word, you heed the word. He says, you've got a choice to make. You can either do it or you don't have to do it. But if you if you do it, let me tell you what will happen. If you don't do it, let me explain what will be the outcome there. So that's how he closes his message. And then it's almost like he just closes everything up and walks down and leaves them with that choice. Maybe I would be a better preacher if I was more forceful in my conclusions that way. I don't know. Maybe we'd have a bigger church. Maybe we'd have a smaller church. It'd all be conjecture. I don't know. But I know that I would want to be here this day to hear what Jesus said. And I don't know about you, but as I would walk away from that hillside that day, whether I was in the crowd of the disciples or in the hearers that were in the multitude in the distance, I would hope I'd be a disciple by then. You know, but I don't want to presume anything. Wherever I'm at, I'm going to walk away from a message like this and just go, I've got to take that in. Oh, I think I'm at a crossroads here. Whether it's a crossroads for a disciple as to how you're going to live your life for Christ or not, or a crossroads as to someone who's being called by God to follow, and you're at that crossroads as to whether you're going to be a Christian or not. What teachings are here? 
What marvelous truth. This is a, a summary of really the life of a Christian, right? If you take what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount and you, you try to order your life after that, you will be living a pattern that Thomas Jefferson would have said, this is what we need to epitomize as American citizens. Now, Thomas Jefferson took a lot of flack for his so-called Jefferson Bible. Many people misunderstood Jefferson's intent on that. Jefferson never would have wanted to rewrite the Bible or take away from the Bible in any way, shape, form, or fashion. In fact, he was hesitant to even let his, his, uh, his uh, compilation of scriptures even be published because he was aware of how people might receive it or not. The Jefferson Bible was a selection of scriptures that he, as a statesman, knew that if people could just get this, if people could just live by this. Now, what about salvation? You know, we're not talking about things like that. We're talking from a statesman's standpoint. If we want people to live in harmony and community together, if they could just abide by this standard. So what he came to do was to take portions of the scriptures of Jesus' own teachings, like the teachings from the so-called Sermon on the Mount, other places, other passages, that would speak to that moral responsibility we have as people. <coughs> and that's what would become this Jefferson Bible, so to speak. And so now hopefully you have a clear understanding of what Jefferson's intent was, I believe, behind the publishing of that. And what we do to say all of that is to say, look at the Sermon on the Mount, the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Can I boil it down this way because Jesus did elsewhere and I think I have good precedent to do this? If you will follow the sermon, the teachings that Jesus gave her in this message, you will come away having learned and applying now how to love God with everything you have. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You'll be right with him if you will come through Jesus and his teachings. You'll have peace that passes understanding. You'll have a life that, that, uh, that will be blessed by God for your obedience to what he has said in his word if you'll just follow Jesus' teaching. The second thing that will happen is the natural outcome of being right with God. You'll start to get right with those around you. And you'll love God first and foremost, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these hang all the law and the prophets. See how marvelous all of this is to, to give us an exposition, if you will, of how we are to handle Old Testament teachings in light of New Testament Christianity. And as Jesus stands between the Old Testament and the New, and he says there's a, there's a way that you need to walk in, and there's a broad way. Some are already on that path. The scribes and the Pharisees have chosen to go down that broad road of destruction, and many are going with them. And they're teaching this system of righteousness that they've made up that's foreign to the Scriptures. They've imposed their traditions upon the teachings of God, and now everyone thinks they're spiritual for following them. You can go that broad way that leads to destruction. There's a, there's a bitter end to living self-righteously, thinking you're okay with God when you're really not, because outwardly you're okay, but inside you're really not. Jesus calls us to get right with God, and once we do that, everything else falls into place. We learn how to handle the Old Testament and how to handle relationships with each other, and how to pray, we learn how to give, we learn how to fast, we learn how to do all these things appropriately as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this summary conclusion, 
Jesus gives his great home-building metaphors. He talks about these two home-builders. And the first parable that Matthew gives us is recorded here on these, these two home-builders. One's going to be a wise home-builder. The other one's going to be a home-wrecker. And the first is the wise carpenter that's contrasted here with the morons. That's what I call them because the Greek word is moros, and you get moron from that. So don't throw anything at me too hard yet. Uh, it, it's in the scriptures here. Maybe you'd rather say fool because it doesn't sound as harsh. Well, just don't be a moron, okay? That's all I'm saying. All right, the wise home builder is the one found in verses 24 and 25. Simply, he's the man who hears. He's the person, if you will, that hears and does Christ's teachings. Now, you can apply that to anything Jesus said because everything he said is scripture, right? That's recorded in the Bible. There are many things he said and taught that weren't written down, uh, that, that weren't inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. But these things that you read from our Savior, you hear them, you do them, uh, you'll be likened unto a wise man. These sayings of mine, we said before that that equates Jesus' words with Scripture itself. That in this passage, we can make an argument for the very deity of Jesus Christ, that he is 100% God and 100% man at the same time in a hypostatic union, in a hypostasis, and he teaches these things as further revelation of God's plan for us, these sayings of mine. And what we believe about doctrine is crucial. This is what will make or break relationships. Doctrine divides. But doctrine is what is filled in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so we must have our doctrine from the Scripture. And that will lead us to choose our path. Obedience to His Word is not optional if you are to follow Him. If you don't want to obey, you're not going to follow but if you're going to follow him, you must understand what he says you have to obey. And that's a four-letter word to many people today that they can't swallow. It's just like the word work. There's nothing wrong with that four-letter word work. If you want the profane word, uh, it's T-O-I-L. And that came after the fall. Work was with mankind before the fall ever occurred. And it's good to give yourself to industri industrious labors that are going to profit and benefit. That's why we were created partially is to be able to do that uh, in God's stead here on this earth that he created and to be the pinnacle of his creation to, and, and created for his pleasure, Revelation says. Well, I don't want to get digressed on that. His work, this man's work, is work that will withstand the storms that come. What storms are these? Well, contextually, I believe these are the storms that would relate to the persecution a disciple will face as he lives his life for Jesus, or she lives her life for Jesus. He said this back in chapter number 5. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Why are we to rejoice? What brings this gladness? Because we're numbered among those that were persecuted for righteousness' sake from days gone by. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. In another place, Jesus is going to stand and, and condemn them for the blood that Israel has shed from righteous Abel all the way to Zechariah. God's prophets have been killed. And so whenever we stand up and tell somebody there's a right way, that implies there's a wrong way too. And if they have chosen that wrong way and fallen in love with that wrong way and are not willing to give up that wrong way, they look at us as their enemies for telling them there's a right way that leads to life. And so we wind up making enemies. Not because we choose to, but because 
of decisions that are made and perspectives that people have. We want to love everybody, right? We want to try to help everybody we can. But the truth of the matter is, there's people out there that don't want your help. And they don't want to listen to you. And they don't care what you have to say about Jesus or the Bible or any of that nonsense. And that works for you. That's good. That's fine. But don't shove it on me. We don't shove what we believe down people's throats. Amen? Please leave the door open for those that come behind you. Don't bulldoze your faith into somebody else's life that's not ready to receive it. You trust God and let him work on them by providence. And maybe pray some prayers that will help them get to that place. You know, like God had to do for Israel when he sent the hornets. Yeah, go read about that. God has ways of ordering our lives to get us to the place where we're ready and willing to look up. But it's still our choice to choose him. And I'm thankful he never gives up on us. That there's always hope as long as we're breathing. Jesus holds that out here in this last conclusion. There's a choice between destruction and life. And he closes really with a gospel call that if you'll receive his sayings, if you will get on this path of discipleship and come through faith in Jesus Christ and what he had come to do, he's not on Calvary yet, but he has come to die for sin. And he knows that, even though they don't yet. He's in the beginning of his ministry. And so he hasn't laid down his life for sin yet. But they can still believe on him at this point and believe that he is the one that God had sent. Many have. Many others will believe. And so can we believe. If you will follow Jesus' teachings as a disciple, the work you build for him, when the storms of adversity come against your life, Jesus gives you a promise. What you build in that realm, on that regard, on that foundation, will withstand. That's a great relief to me. I don't know about you, but it's a great relief to me. Because I can work my fingers to the bone, building structures here and temporal things, and, and I can give myself to worthy causes. I'm not talking about anything that's necessarily even sinful. I'm talking about things that just aren't going to last. And then, you know, there's always that question in the back of your mind. Is my house going to be there when I get home? I don't know. I left my house just like you did this morning. Oh, no. You know, I'm thinking of a trip that I took one time where I left the stove on. And we're going, we're going away for days. And I'm saying, oh, no. That's a recipe for disaster. God watched over my stupidity. He did. You know, I was able to call a friend and they were able to get into my house, fortunately, and turn my stove off that was still burning with nothing on. Thank the Lord. You know, it doesn't always work out like that. I know some people have gone through real tragedy just from little things. You know, a spark here or just the, the wind blows the wrong way a day or something and, and everything is comes crashing down. I have those questions in the back of my mind like you do. This is a work that if you will put your hand to Jesus' promises, no storm can touch this. Wow. That's what I want to work for. I want, I want to work on that. The rest of this stuff will take care of itself. I'm going to give my life to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he'll take care of all these other things that I would worry about otherwise. When I get done, when I get through it all, yeah, I'm going to go through some storms. But so are the other people who were foolish. You see, the storm comes, no matter if you're in the wise man's arena or in the 
Morons Marina. Uh, Marina, yeah, he's, uh, he's on a boat. Arena. Yeah, he caught that, didn't he? I helped you catch it. There you go. So the storm comes, doesn't it? And boy, that's, an, I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit was in that one because I wouldn't want to be in a storm in a marina, would you? Well, we move on. The work would not withstand the inevitable storms that would come. And this man, I mean, he's working, is he not? Is he not a diligent worker? Has he not heard the same things that, that Jesus had said that the wise man did? But he goes and makes a different decision, and he works for the wrong motive. He works for the wrong reasons. He builds for the wrong kingdom. He builds for his own kingdom. He builds for this earth. He builds for uh, the 401k. Uh, okay, nothing wrong with 401k, but hopefully you sense my application there. Okay, we need to be wise in what we do for God. Wise, not foolish. And the devil has so many ways in his toolbox. He has so many tools. And he knows exactly where to get you. And if he doesn't know yet, trust me, he's working on you. And he's going to find out real quick. Because he knows how you respond to things. And he's going to try this in your life. And he's going to try that. When that doesn't work, oh, I, that didn't go like I thought. You know, I had this person stereotyped. I had them all profiled like the FBI and Google and Amazon everybody else is profiling you now. I have, I've got them all figured out. You know, if I do this, then they're going to respond this way. Oh, they didn't respond that way because we're not robots. Every one of us are different. So we each have a choice to make. And sometimes we do something that I think surprises him. And he has to regroup and go back to the drawing board and come at us again with some, well, that one didn't work, but I know this one will. And see, time is on his side right now. It's not for long, but it is right now. And he's had thousands of years to toy with human, human beings, humanity. And days gone by, he knows exactly where to get you. And he's going to work on you. If not him, it'll be one of his minions. Somebody somewhere is going to be working on you. And he'll get you distracted. You'll spend your life working for what you think is a good cause. Words come to mind that the Apostle Paul encountered in his ministry and his journey. You know, he's trying to build a work for God. And there's a man that comes alongside him and, and gets going and he starts out well and Every, I mean, he's, he's a promising young man, and he's helping Paul. But then we read these words that Paul records just in passing, so briefly. But I, I just imagine what would have been in the heart of the apostle to pen these words when he says, Demas hath forsaken me. He didn't say Demas went off in the wicked hate of sin. Don't misread your Bible. and Don't imply there that Demas was necessarily wicked or lost. It says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. So if you want a real live illustration of how this works out, Paul would be the equivalent of the wise man whose works last. Demas, where's he? By the time Paul wrote that, I'm not even sure Paul knew where Demas was. And what Demas was doing. Did Demas' work last? Did it stand? Not according to Paul's final testimony about him. We might find different when we meet before the Lord. I don't want to judge Demas because that's not my place. But I do see what the scriptures say, and that's inspired scripture. That Paul said, Demas had forsaken me, having loved this present world. Something happened in Demas' heart and life that led him from the path that Jesus had given here, that narrow path. And his, his work didn't stand. But Paul's did. You look at him as... He approaches the end of his life. He says, I've run my course. I've finished my course. 
I've fought the good fight of faith. And Paul was looking for a crown. Demas is probably going to be, I don't know, he's probably going to be standing with a handful of ash. Maybe there'll be a gem or two in there that will last from something he did with Paul when he served with Paul or somebody that got saved through something he did. Maybe there'll be some diamonds in, you know, in, in that mix. But all that ash he lived his life for. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew. Notice the intensity that Jesus uses here of the description of the storm. You don't want to be in this kind of storm in this geographic area in this day and time. These kind of rains that descend, uh, this is a, a dry area for the most part. And up north, even, you have the headwaters of the Jordan up there, the four, the four tributaries that make the headwaters of the Jordan at the foot of Mount Hermon. And this semi-hilly region, you know, nothing like the mountains we have here, mind you. Mount Hermon is probably the highest peak that they'll have there, but they've got the Sea of Galilee. I mean, just think about how quick storms can come from what you've read in the Bible yourself, just uh, the disciples being out on the sea, and then all of a sudden, within no time, these seasoned fishermen think that they're about to die on this little lake because of how bad the storm is. An equivalent here in Colorado might be, you know, stranded somewhere in the middle of a blizzard out here in the Rocky Mountains with no cell service, with no shelter, with no way to make fire, with no potable water near you, and, and you're in a dire circumstance that if you don't get help, you're going to die. I mean, that might be a scenario where we might get a little shaken up and say, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this or not. These disciples were in a place like that multiple times with Jesus. Master, carest thou not that we perish? The storms are going to come. When they come, they are violent. Violent storms in our lives. And they come on the wise and they come on the foolish. Jesus is teaching here. And the language he uses is extraordinarily vivid. The moron home wrecker, if you will, okay, the foolish house builder, the moron home wrecker, is one who hears but doesn't do the teachings of and one commentator said this, What is commendable, even in the foolish builder? He was not a neglecter of religious things altogether. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He heard the sayings of the great teacher. It's clear also that he heard with sufficient attention to understand. He was also greatly influenced by what he heard. He felt the importance of making provision for the future, of building a house to protect himself from the inclemency of the approaching season. He actually selected a site. He commenced the building. He stayed not. He stopped not until it was finished. There's nothing said disparagingly, uh, disparagingly respecting the external appearance of the house. It probably looked grand. He expended sufficient time and toil, keyword, in his uh, in his building. It's obvious that the foolish builder, in plain terms, heard understood, was interested, was greatly influenced by the teaching of the Savior, and all these features are worthy of commendation, are they not? One person said the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Is there any word in which hearing and doing are summed up? Hearing and doing, any word come to mind? If you were to just choose one word, it would be obedience, wouldn't it? Obedience. 
one who has answered the call and given themselves to follow Jesus and say, I will do what you say. Why is obedience so important? Well, let me tell you this story. And this is, uh, this is just one that I gleaned from my studies, but it stood out to me. I, I think you'll enjoy it too. One who has answered was a man who himself served for years in the Royal Navy. So we're talking about Royal Navy. In his view, the punishment uh, was not, oh, I skipped a part, okay. Obedience, let me back up and give you the rest, the beginning of the story here, I missed a part. Jesus demands implicit obedience, we talked about that. To learn, to obey, that's the most important thing in life. And here's the story. Some time ago, there was a report of the case of a sailor in the Royal Navy who was severely punished for a breach of discipline. So severe was the punishment that in certain civilian quarters, it was thought to be far too severe. And you're just taking it too hard on this guy. I mean, he, he didn't do anything worthy of what you're making him have to do this punishment for. And a newspaper asked its readers to express their opinions about the severity of the punishment. And one of the answers that came in now is where we pick up where I began a moment ago. One who answered was a man who himself served years in the Royal Navy. In his view, the punishment was not too severe. Everybody else is saying, that's way overboard, that's too harsh. This man says, no, it's not too severe. Let me speak from experience, okay? Are you with me? In his view, it wasn't too severe. He held that discipline was absolutely essential. For the purpose of discipline was to condition those in service automatically and unquestioningly, automatically, unquestioningly, to obey orders. On such obedience, their lives might well depend. He cited a case from his own experience. He was in a launch, which was towing a much heavier vessel in a rough sea. The vessel was attached to the launch by a wire cable. Suddenly, in the midst of the wind and the spray, there came a single, insistent word of command from the officer in charge of the launch. Down! He shouted that. And on the spot, the crew of the launch flung themselves down. Just at that moment, the wire, towing cable, it snapped and the broken parts of it whipped about like a maddened steel snake, he said. If any man had been struck by it, he would have been instantly killed. But the whole crew automatically obeyed. And not one was injured. If anyone had stopped to argue or asked, why do I need to get down? He would have been a dead man. Obedience saved lives. Now, that's a pretty severe illustration. But we can think of some that would parallel that, right? As a parent, I'm concerned about the obedience of my children to the point that if they don't know the word stop, I'm going to work with them until they do. Because if they can't stop when I say stop, there could be tragic consequences. I'm thinking about little ones, you know, that like to run in streets and things without looking first. You're with me. We are a little more observant and a little further down the road. And if we see something that we're watching out for them, it's not for us that we're telling them to stop, is it? Well, I mean, part of it is because we love them. We don't want to lose them. But it's for them because we see the impending danger. And so can you apply that fatherly 
attitude to the Lord Jesus Christ and his message to you, if you'll follow him, blessed are, let your light so shine, salt and light. You've heard that it hath been said, therefore by them of old time, thou shalt or thou shalt not. But I say unto you, this is how you need to live instead. Let it come from the inside out. Listen to Jesus, our Father which art in heaven. How do we pray? When should I fast? How should I fast? What should I give my effort and my labor to? If you listen to Jesus, he's helping you ward off the destruction that's coming. Because, you know, the car's going to come. Whether you're in the middle of the street or not is another question. The car's coming. The storm is on the way. Will you be able to withstand in that evil day? And having done all, stand with the whole armor of God. Gird about. Now, one thing that struck me about this moron, don't be a moron, okay? Just listen to what Jesus said. That's the whole thrust of the message. Don't be a moron. I love it. Okay, just just don't be a moron, all right? Can I plead with you lovingly? This man, who is a foolish builder, the moron home record, that's what I call him, he is going to witness and watch his works destroyed. Notice he's not destroyed. That was interesting to me. He sees his work destroyed. And that reminded me of some things Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 pertaining to the judgment seat of Christ and things. Now I know Jesus is also giving a very stern warning about the end of all things. And if we get caught up in false righteousness, as I mentioned earlier, we could wind up in hell. I mean, that's the cost of, of being on that wrong path when you don't come through faith in Jesus Christ. But the whole message was geared toward his disciples. So we need to understand there's two judgments in Scripture. There's the judgment of the dead in Revelation 20, and they'll be cast into the lake of fire. And the, the dead are those who have rejected Jesus Christ. They have refused the gift of salvation from the Savior by faith. The other judgment is for those who have believed. And this is a judgment not of punishment, the great white throne, this is a judgment of reward, if you will. But now don't let that fool you, because there's going to be loss, great loss, sustained at the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible doesn't promise that our tears are going to get wiped away until all the tribulation and all of the pain and all of that is over in Revelation. So don't think too early that your tears are going to be gone. I believe there's going to be plenty of tears at the judgment seat of Christ. I'll be crying some of them myself, I'm sure. Because I will, I'm, the Lord's going to reveal everything. And all my work is going to be tried. And I'm going to go, man, I missed the boat on that. I did that one wrong. Oh, I can't go over and do it again. But I did that one. I, I missed it altogether. And it's nothing but ash now. But then there's going to be some that remain. There's going to be some gold and some silver and some precious stone. And from that, you know, the Lord's going to take and he's going to mold a crown. And he's going to offer that to his disciples, those that live faithfully for him here. That baffles me. Why in the world? I mean, I, I, I'm just an unprofitable steward. I, I'm not worthy for this. And the Lord's going to come and offer that to those who would live for him now. They'll reign with him then when he comes in power and glory. And that's the promise of the afterlife, if you will. There is a promise to come. And the Lord is going to offer that to me. I'm not, no. And so it's recorded in Scripture that those crowns, will be laid down at our Savior's feet. Why? Because he's the one who's worthy. 
I wouldn't have it if it weren't for him. Can you sense the love of a Savior who's calling out to you to say, do it the right way? Look, you're going to do a work. You're going to build it for yourself or you're going to build it for God. You're going to build it even for somebody else but God, but you're not going to do it for God. Or you're going to build it for God. Do it right. Do it right so it'll last. It's not always going to be easy. The storms are going to come. But if you'll do it, you won't witness its destruction. The old expositor Stephen Olford once said this. He said, these counterfeit Christians, he's talking about the moron homewreckers that I named them that, you know. He's talking about counterfeit Christians, that's what he called them, who build on a sandy foundation, have a deceptive appearance, sheep and wolves, a defective obedience, and a destructive experience. He was a much more eloquent expositor than me. He's good at alliteration, I'm not. Sometimes I am. Sometimes it comes, sometimes it doesn't. As long as it helps us remember the truth, that's what matters. Now, one thing as I read in the original, the word sand. He builds his house on sand. I didn't see any other commentators on this, so I'm going to I'm going to leave this thought with you because it, it was it was a gem for me in my study, and I, I know that you'll look at it and be able to see that too. I'm not casting pearls before swine here to quote Matthew seven in other places. The word sand in the original language sounds a lot like the word mammon. Take it for what it is. It's ammon. It's it's ammon. It's mammon without the m. And so he builds his house on ammon. He builds his house on sand. Does that remind you of anywhere else in the Sermon on the Mount? That's why I say in this conclusion, it's not just for the immediate things that follow. It goes, I mean, there's things that, there's words and connectors that I see that go all the way back to chapter number five. Life has many storms. The beating rains of trouble, the flowing waters of sin, the chilling winds of fear. Old Adrian Rogers summarizes it like this. He says, you, have, you must have the Word of God. Do you have it? Have you heard the Word of God? You have to have it, you have to hear it, and you have to heed it. Thank you, Dr. Rogers, the late Dr. Rogers. Verse 28 and 29, we join the crowd that's there that day in utter amazement, astonished. Why? Because of what Jesus had said. You see, this was completely different from what they were used to. And here, his marvelous didactic authority is seen. Let me explain that so that you can get your notes filled in, and we'll move on. And I'll be done. This is where we see truth contrasted with tradition. Truth contrasted with tradition. That's verses 28 and 29. And that closes... Matthew chapter number 7. Notice the marveling of the crowds. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Christ completed his message. Isn't it a good thing when the preacher completes his message? You thought I was done a minute ago, but you got to hang on. I'm almost done. I will let you get out of here before lunch. Maybe. After lunch for those who will stay for the afternoon. Christ completed his message. It's like he closed it up, walked out of there, and... That was the last word he said. The last word he said was, great was the fall of it. Message is over, and the people are going, good house, bad house, big fall. Oh. In wonder and amazement, this is some deep doctrine. These are some powerful things. And the crowd marveled at his teaching. 
so picturesque in the terms it's used here. The word uh, is, uh, I can't pronounce it properly, but it means to be beside oneself, to be struck dumb with amazement. Don't read it too quickly and say, uh, you know, they, they marveled, they were amazed. It says, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Okay, they were astonished. <laughs> no, they were beside themselves. They, they were, what did I say a moment ago? Continuing in amazement. They were struck dumb with amazement. doesn't mean you're struck stupid. It means you're like, I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say about that. Amazed at the teaching that came from his lips. Now, the sense of it here is they continued this way. It wasn't just a fleeting thing, you know, you, like, you know, you leave from the doors here. By the time you get in the car, you can't even remember what the preacher said. You're like me sometimes. i got to go back. I do things through the message to help me remember key things. And if I could just grab one of them, I get so many. But if I could just grab one and hold on to it, then I'll be good to go. No, they're still pondering this. They go back and they have lunch or whatever they're doing. And they still over. Can you believe what he said? You know, these houses, what are these buildings? They were just struck dumb with amazement, astonished. Astonished. And there are other times that Matthew and the scriptures record people being astonished at Jesus. What's the explanation for their astonishment? You've got to see this because, again, it ties back to the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes in particular. Matthew explains why they were so dumbfounded. What was the difference? Because here's a man that stands up and he teaches in a way that they're not used to this. See, these scribe people, you know, they, they have all these conjectures and they quote Rabbi so-and-so this and Rabbi so-and-so that. You know, over here, and you can't, I mean, if you ever need to go to sleep at night, just get out something like the Midrash. And go through all those little minutiae Things about uh, don't boil oil in the lamp this way. Uh, make sure that when you pour, oil, pour your oil in the lamp that you, you know, if you're using a clay lamp, then do it this. If you're using, ugh, get lost in all of that stuff. But I mean, there's just a minutia of stuff. The scribes would have been masters of all of this. And you had a question, you go, but they have no authority. They're just saying, well, we're, we're telling you to do this, but they don't really have any authority as to why you need to do that. Well, it's because it goes back to Rabbi so-and-so. He suggested this, and so that's why we do this now. Why do we have what color carpet we do in the church today? Well, it's because so-and-so. Okay. Take that for what it's worth. What color are the curtains going to be? Well, we won't go there. They encounter Christ's bold authority. The only authority that I have to stand before you and say anything today is this right here. That's it. You can come to me in a private meeting and you can ask my opinion on things and I can tell you what I think, but unless it comes from here, I don't have any basis of authority for that. I have no authority. One person's opinion might be as good as someone else's. and It might work in this scenario. It might not work in that scenario. But this is infallible. This is unfailing. And this is why, as we give the word, we do so with boldness, because it's thus saith the Lord. And he is the highest authority to which we can appeal. He is the highest author that I can cite, if you will, if you want a journalistic approach. No approach to the scriptures journalistically, but you, know, you always want to cite the highest source, right? You want to go to the most credible authority you can. 
There is no more credible authority than the Word of God. It, it takes precedence. And Jesus here is teaching as one having authority, not as a scribe. Do you see the contrast? He's doing it this way. They're not doing it this way. And this is what astonishment. In stark contrast with the lack of authority from the scribes. You believe these things really work? Here's some, some silly illustrations for you, okay? Infomercials. You believe that is really going to work? Well, I don't recommend that you go and spend a lot of time researching these. But if you want a good laugh, and you laugh to do with good like, like medicine, it's an old proverb, right? The scriptural part is, a, is a, the merry heart. And so listen to this. In 1931, the classic epic of America, James Thurslow uh, Adams defines the American dream as the ability of both men and women to reach their fullest potential. Has anybody ever heard of the Hawaii chair? Okay, infomercial number one. Do you really believe this is going to work? Okay, we're talking about the basis of people's authority. Don't lose me. I might lose you. The American fitness dream follows the same idea, but with a slight addendum. addendum. We get the idea, okay? We want to reach our fullest potential, but we clarify that when it comes to working out. Minimal time and effort. I want that dream, but I don't want to work to get it. Right? You've seen those people. Maybe you are one. Maybe, maybe I am at times. Minimal time, minimal effort. This is where the Hawaii chair makes its retail mark. Because all you got to do is sit in this chair. And boy, I'm going to make a fool out of myself. You know, if you had a chair here, you just did this like wobbling thing. That's the Hawaii chair. You see the, the little YouTube on it that they did the infomercial for. The idea is a Hawaii chair, you know, the, the hulu, uh, hulu circles that the, the dancers do over there. That's what you're doing in that chair. And you've got all kinds of people, you know, from every walk of society in this chair. It looks so uncomfortable. I'm thinking, I'm sitting at my desk and I'm trying to write a sermon or a letter or something. Uh, 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 uh. Hey, I'm losing weight. Really think it's going to work? What kind of authority are you basing that on? Well, I saw this infomercial. It's got to work. You see, these guys come to this, the, the crowds as they come to these messages, and they, they look at what the scribes are teaching. They have, they have no authority. There's no basis for that. But then they look at what Jesus taught. Say, this, this has a different source. This comes from higher authority. Now, they may not have put together that it's the highest authority. The other one you might remember is the old Gensu knife. It's supposed to last forever. You know, if you still have one, they promised that you could turn it in forever and they would, you know, fix it or companies defunct. If you want to turn in your Ginsu knife, um, you can try to send that back, but uh, don't expect much in return. You can send it to Ginsu Products Incorporated, 59 West Shore Road, Warwick, Rhode Island, 02889. But don't expect anything back from them because egomania... Uh, Salon Spa Incorporated, Egomania Salon Spa Incorporated, has since take over the, taken over the office space, maybe even somebody else by now. And so by the sound of that company name, their products have no chance of cutting through a tin can. Gensu okay. Mighty Putty. This would, this would replace Alabama Mondo. What authority are you basing this stuff on? You see, it's, it's a silly way to get your attention to the basis of Jesus' authority. We're not talking about 
fairy tales here. We're not talking about people who are walking around living their life with imaginary friends because Jesus, I can't see him, so he must be an imaginary friend. We haven't lost our mind. We're not, we're not deranged. No, we know whom we have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He's not an imaginary friend. He is my Savior, and I know him personally. And his Spirit calls me and moves me. Now, I can't explain all of the mystical side of how that works in my following Christ, but I know God is real. I know he is. And for you that have tasted the waters of everlasting life, you know the joy that stems from that. You know the truth and the reality. We're not following some fable, some cunningly devised fable. No, these things, we have a more sure word of prophecy. We're not basing our eternity on, on a promise like the Gensu Knife or the Hawaii Chair or any other infomercial of Time's Top 20 infomercials, if you want to consider it that way. We're not basing our eternal destiny on the teachings of the scribes that are fallible. We're teaching the words of Jesus Christ that will last forever. The picture is clear. All the work that the scribes and Pharisees had done would come to naught. Come to nothing. That great empire they had built of the Sanhedrin and all that righteousness in the 70s, the rapport that men like Paul would say, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. It means nothing in light of eternity. Many would be destroyed by their false teaching. A disciple of Christ has a great responsibility to walk humbly in the truth and in the light, to live openly God's true righteousness before a wicked and hateful world. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. And you fill in the blank. Multiple times Jesus said that. And so if you would be a follower of Jesus Christ, there's nothing greater you can do than build your life and your work on scriptural principles. Build your life on the Bible and it will last. Is your life built upon the sandy foundation? Is it built upon the mammon foundation? Or are you building upon the rock, Jesus Christ? If there's any doubt in your mind, may God give you profound restlessness until you settle the issue once for all. And that your testimony might be the words of that great hymn of the faith, 1834, as Edward Moat thought about the gracious experience of a Christian who penned these words. <coughs> My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other is sinking sand. Would you be a wise builder today? Please. With all due respect and with as much love as I can have in me for you, don't be a moron.